0: This episode is brought to you in part by Regent College, Vancouver, Canada. Experience God's call to a life more abundant with our one to two week summer courses. Sign up today at rgnt.net/slash summer.
1: During the altar call, man, I felt like everyone in that—it was hundreds of people there. I felt like everybody in the church was like pointing to me, like you. Mm. You, you need to go down and get saved. You know, like that's how convicted I felt. So he asked people to come down, you know, give their life to Christ. And I didn't because I was like, I didn't want to get saved. I didn't want to be a Christian. Mm. I knew I didn't have to be perfect, but I didn't even want to try. You know, I didn't want Jesus to be my Lord. I didn't want to live according to his commandments and teachings or even try. I wanted to do what I wanted to do.
2: This is Where You're From, an origin story podcast at the intersection of faith and culture that digs into the influences and experiences that shape who we are today. Join us as we gain insight into the Bible's wisdom for all, regardless of where we're from. Hey, y'all, this is Rasul Berry. Thanks for joining me on Where You're From. This week, I'm talking with none other than sports analyst, commentator, and broadcaster, Chris Broussard. You may have seen him on ESPN or Fox Sports 1. Or maybe you've heard him on numerous radio programs, but you have never heard him like this. We do a deep dive into his life from his family history and his childhood in Cincinnati to the emptiness of success, which sent him looking for more. You can find out more about Chris, including King Ministries, which he founded, in the show notes or by visiting you are That's where y a Please join me as I ask Chris Broussard, where are you from?
1: Well, first of all, man, it's a pleasure to be here with you and where I'm from. I was born in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, Mm -hmm. and my family roots are in Louisiana, African-American of Creole descent, which is like really a mixture of African ancestry and French. But in doing my DNA, I found out I have all types of... European blood in me mm. to go along with the African. So it's not just French. But yeah, so from Louisiana, moved as a baby to Cincinnati, Ohio, because my father grew up in Cincinnati. My mother was born in Baton Rouge. My father was born in Opelousas, Louisiana, which is a little town mm. in Louisiana. But my father and my mother met at Xavier University, which is an HBCU in New Orleans, and the way they met was, you know, they were freshmen, and there was a dance, a school dance. And Xavier's a Catholic school, mm-hmm. the only Catholic HBCU, I believe. Yep. And the nuns asked all the girls to put their shoe in the center of the room, and the guys were supposed to pick a shoe, and whoever shoe you picked, you would dance with. So my father's like five six, five feet six inches tall. So he said he picked the smallest shoe. <laughs> he could find, and it was my mom's, and she's four eight, so uh wow. yeah, so I'm five ten, I'm like the giant in my household. I don't <laughs> know how I got to be this big, but yeah, so that's how my parents met. but my father, even though he was born in Louisiana, he grew up in Cincinnati. His father, my grandfather, had a sixth grade education and was in the army World War two. And he met some African-Americans there from the North. Hmm. And they were all telling him, man, you got to get your family out of the South. You know, get up Hmm. North when you can. And my father actually was born while my grandfather was in World War II. My grandfather, being that he spoke Creole, he served as an interpreter in World War II Hmm. with the French because it was close to French, obviously. But anyway, when my grandfather came back to Louisiana, he walked into a store. And the store owner called him Tay-Nig, which in French meant little hmm. N-word, little hmm. N-word. And my grandfather said, you know what? That's it. You know, I'm getting out of here. I'm taking my family up north. And this is after
2: he came back from fighting for the freedom for America, yep. fighting against tyranny, against racism, ostensibly. And then right, he comes right, back right. Home.
1: And is racially oppressed. Exactly. So he took the train up to... Cincinnati, because it was the first stop after the Mason-Dixon line. Hmm. And he got out and found a cab driver, black cab driver, and said, take me where the colored folk live. (laughs) And he went. Cincinnati got a job as a cement finisher, bought an apartment. And once he got settled, after a few months, he went back down to Louisiana and got my father and my grandmother. And that's why my father grew up in Cincinnati. Ohio and his three siblings, one sister and two brothers, they all grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio. And my grandfather, who had this sixth grade education, my grandmother, I think, had a 10th grade education Mm. through hard work. My grandfather worked two jobs. My grandmother never worked. And then when he stopped working two jobs, he still was working one, obviously, as a cement finisher. But he took correspondence courses through the mail of how to build TVs and repair television sets. Mm. This was the 1950s, how to repair and build television sets. So once he went through that, he started his own TV repair business wow. and eventually was able to just do television repair full time. But through that, he put four kids through college mm. and they all went to Xavier in New Orleans. And then through those four, there are eight of us who are their grandchildren, We've all been through college and graduated and all are doing well. And I use that story a lot to teach people how you can change the destiny of your family. Mm. And my grandfather, through faith and hard work and through courage to leave the South and migrate up North, uh, was able to change the destiny of his family. And there's no way I would be where I'm at as a broadcaster for Fox Sports, if it weren't for the sacrifices and the hard work and the courage that my grandfather had and made.
2: Wow, man, that is an amazing story. And there were so many pieces that I got to kind of jump in and get a little bit more of the nooks and crannies. So first, the other thing that was just kind of interesting was just that sense of a desire for better for his family and even being exposed to that by having his horizons opened by other troops that were with him that said yep. you don't have to live in these kind of oppressive conditions. But then the fact that literally the story of race in America has shaped who you are, like oh, down no to like where your folks are from and all that. So, Absolutely. So we didn't even got to where you grew up
1: yet. <laughs> <laughs> right. I was born in Baton Rouge. My father was in the Vietnam War while I was born. Hmm. And so when he came home, I wasn't even a year old. My father, as I said, graduated from Xavier University. I think his degree was in business administration. And so my father, he was in that first group of African-Americans who graduated from college after affirmative action was you know, just enacted. Hmm. And so he worked with the government for a few years and then eventually got a job at Travelers Insurance Company in corporate America in that first group of African-Americans to really... Get those jobs. So he worked in Cincinnati. So we lived in Cincinnati, Ohio from the time I was younger than a year old until I was seven years old. Okay. And travelers kept transferring him. Mm. He got promoted, but he kept getting transferred to different cities. So when I was seven, we moved from Cincinnati, Ohio to Indianapolis, Indiana. Mm-hmm. And then after four and a half years there, we moved to Syracuse, New York. When I was in the seventh grade, after a year and a half there, we moved to Des Moines, Iowa, (laughs) Wow! where I started high school, believe it or not, in Des Moines, Iowa. We were there for two and a half years. And then late in my junior year of high school, we moved to Cleveland, Ohio. And so I graduated from high school in Cleveland and went to college, Oberlin College near Cleveland, about 45 minutes west of Cleveland. But now Louisiana We would go to Louisiana almost every summer and drive down and stay with family and relatives. And so I did experience a lot of Louisiana.
2: Okay, hold on for a sec. I've been to New Orleans several times and I would say it is the most richly unique culture in Louisiana in the country in terms of just the confluence of different cultures. I'm curious about how you experienced that growing up, especially now that you've lived in other places, maybe you can appreciate it more. So for those who've never been around the bayou, right? Like (laughs) help us get a sense of what that was like, like what you saw, smelled, experienced in Louisiana.
1: Yeah, obviously the food, you know, beignet, gumbo, jambalaya, boudin. But yeah, so when I was in Louisiana, I was in Baton Rouge, but also Opelousas, Lake Charles and New Orleans to some degree. But so my mother's side, my grandfather, it's hard to say he was lighter than me, (laughs) but he's light like me or lighter than me. And he could easily have passed for a white man. But he was he was black, and my grandmother, his wife, was brown skin. And I asked him once, "Are you Creole?" He said, "I don't want to say what he said." He's like, "No, I ain't Creole," you know. And so he, but I'm I'm guessing he was because his last name was Beauregard. But he he did not claim to be Creole. He just claimed to be black. Those grandparents have interesting stories as well. They both graduated from Southern University in Baton Rouge, which is an HBCU down there. And so they were both very active in the NAACP and all that. But on that side of my family, I did not really experience any type of Creole influence. We just considered, you know, it was just Black. My grandmother, her background was Baptist. My grandfather was Catholic, but she converted to Catholicism when she got married to him. But we still would go to the Baptist churches. But on my father's side, yes, when we were out in the country and Appaloosa's with him at times in New Orleans, we saw more of the Creole influence. But I'm going to be honest, for myself growing up North or in the Midwest, I just thought of myself and was raised as just Black. Mm. So I really am not rooted. Like I grew up experiencing the Creole culture. I just was Black. Right. You know, and that's how I was raised. That's how we thought of ourselves. And some of my other cousins, certainly the ones who grew up in Louisiana. And they you know, had a strong Black identity as well, but they were raised more in the Creole culture and seeing some of that too.
2: Gotcha. Like, and then rewinding, because identity formation is interesting, right? Because it's a factor of what's around you and also how people perceive you. Absolutely. So do you remember the earliest moment of being like, oh, I'm Black, or like where that became an important aspect of understanding who you were based on people's maybe responses around you even?
1: My first recollections of race... My father was very pro-black and I mean, pro-black, like just proud to be black. That was just instilled in me. I never had any insecurity or inferiority complex about being black at all. And I'm thankful for that because I know a lot of African-Americans have grown up with that type of kind of complex because of the racism, but I never felt it because my father was very pro-black. That's the way I was raised. And I don't mean, he didn't know or teach me a lot of Black history. Mm. I mean, he did civil rights marches down when he was in college in Louisiana and all that. It was more of a, almost a popular culture. I mean, in sports, you know, we always were pulling, not unlike most African Americans, but we always pulled for the team with the Black quarterback, you know, Mm. or the team with the Black coach. Black music was big in our household. It was just embedded in us. I mean, everybody was a brother, you know, the brother's this, the brother's that, you know? And so I started at a public school, but then in second grade, I went to a Catholic school in Cincinnati. And Cincinnati, I didn't know it at the time. I'm a kid, but it was, you know, has had a, obviously a racist history. Yeah. So I went to this Catholic school. The public school I've been at was probably majority black. I went to this Catholic school that was all white. I think there were three blacks, myself, my brother, and this other brother named Benji. (laughs) And, uh, but anyway, on the bus, we would get teased by the older kids. Mm. We took the bus to school and back home. And uh, some of the older kids, like fourth, fifth, sixth graders, would tease us. You know, Mm. me and my brother, we had Afro's. You know, they were just always teasing us about being black. Now, the kids in my class were cool. I I developed some good friendships, Mm. but the older kids during recess, fourth graders would tease me. And so I got in a couple fights that were race based with the older kids. So, yeah, those are some of my earliest recollections of race. And I tell people I haven't calculated. I don't keep track. Right. But I've said to people, honestly, I don't think there's a day in my life that I haven't thought about race. Hmm. Not always negative, right. mostly not negative, but just yeah, you walk into a room. I'm the only black person there. Or how many brothers are in here? How many other black people? You know, like yeah. just whatever the situation, race in some form or fashion has crossed my mind probably every day of my life since I've had a memory.
2: And, you know, just to hear the context of your grandfather's experience, you know, at World War II, your dad's experience in Vietnam, and then your experience, like this aspect of like it being part of this conflict and this challenge that you've, through no fault of your own, just found yourself in the midst of. Right. But another thing that you mentioned that, you know, I'm curious about, there's so much of these kind of mixture of different Experiences and you talked about from a faith standpoint, some of your family being Catholic, some being Baptist, you kind of being in all of these different environments. I'm curious about when did you start to have a sense of personal faith in Christ and start walking with Him? You know, if that, I don't know if that was as a kid or if that was later in life, but like when did you first? start thinking about this and being like, yo, this is important to me.
1: Right. Well, I grew up Catholic, as I said, and we went to church every Sunday, Mm. no matter what, pretty much. And I went to Catholic schools from second grade through high school. My father, believe it or not, actually studied. He went to seminary for two years during high school Mm. to become a priest, a Catholic priest. Mm. So he was in seminary from his sophomore and junior years of high school. And um, race keeps coming up, but yo, we've lived in a racist country. So anyway, he's in a seminary. You know, things are going well. He's one of maybe five African-Americans out of 150 boys and stuff like that. And he played sports, was popular, had friends, all that. And one day when he was a junior, a freshman asked him, why are you so dark? And he said, "Maybe it's because I'm colored." At that time, "colored" was the phrase they used. And he said later, like that day going forward, everything changed the way people treated him. Wow. Guys he was friends with were shunning him. He would walk up; they having a conversation, they would stop talking or they would walk away. Now these are guys who were studying to be priests. Wow! So they had assumed that they he was thought he was white. white. Yeah. They thought he was white. Wow. And he said even some of the administration just were treating him differently. Mm. And so after two weeks of this, being shunned, getting the cold shoulder, all that, from people he had been cool with, he called his dad and mommy. He lived, you know, he'd been living in the dorms at the seminary. They came up and he got in the car. They're talking. He's crying with my grandparents and he's telling them what happened. And my grandfather, Burley, said, son, everybody's not meant to be Jackie Robinson. Come on, mm. home. you know? And wow. so that ended my father's quest to become a Catholic priest, which I'm glad he did not become a Catholic <laughs> priest, because as you know, uh, I wouldn't be here, right? <laughs> they don't get married. So that's a little bit of religious background. My grandparents were devout Catholics, if you will. Got it. And so I was raised Catholic. And so when I went to college, I was a Catholic, but I didn't know anything about having a personal relationship with Christ. Mm. You know, I was interested in God, obviously, and I did pray. And I remember at times thinking, man, I wish I knew God's will. Like, I wish I knew what God really wanted me to do. You know, things like that. How you want me to live, how he wants us to live. And it's interesting. My first girlfriend in college was Buddhist. Mm-hmm. Buddhist to the point where every morning and every evening before dinner, she would get up and chant. She had a gahonzon, zone, was a little wooden shrine. Mm-hmm. She put fruit and incense and all that in front of it and chant. I did it with her once. But I didn't dabble other than that, I didn't dabble in the Buddhism. But I, you know, I would pray most nights. So my sophomore year in college, I began dating a woman who uh was a Christian. You know, she had converted her freshman year, or it might have been her sophomore year, and you know, had stopped doing a lot of things that college students do because she was trying to follow Christ, you know. Mm. And so when we started dating, she was really the first close friend I had that exposed me to biblical Christianity. I played on the basketball team. There were a couple guys on the basketball team who were Christians. Uh one of them I was a, a good, fairly good friend with. He lived next door to me. And he was a Christian. I gotta be honest, I didn't know anything about biblical Christianity. Mm like cuz when we would go to the Baptist churches with my grandmother we were really going to the concerts that yeah. my cousins were performing at uh, you know their concerts so when i started dating her she kind of exposed me to biblical christianity because you know she was going to the bible studies on campus actually led by this brother that was on the hoop team <laughs> and um she would you know want to pray so she would say let's pray and so when we would pray, because I, I was open, I thank God that I had a soft heart, you know, mm. and I was open to prayer. But when we prayed, I noticed the big difference because she, when she prayed, it was like she was praying to somebody she knew, mm. like a brother or father, a friend, you know, she was praying to God like she had this relationship with him. Those are things that opened me up to biblical Christianity, but we were dating for a year, and a half before I got saved. It was a constant tug Mm. of war because I wasn't trying to live for Christ. And she was, even though we had a great relationship and good times, it was this constant Mm. tension. right? And so she ended up going to medical school nearby, like about an hour away. And so we stayed together and we would visit each other on weekends. And one weekend we went to a church. It was a charismatic church. I hadn't seen anything like that, mm. you know. They had the lyrics to the songs on the wall, on the big screen, right? Everybody's up, excited about God and singing and praising yeah. and, you know, just excited. And I had never, being a Catholic, with all due respect, I mean, I was just used to boring, solemn <laughs> services. Like, I'm used to sitting in there daydreaming, counting the minutes till it's over. I mean, real talk, you know, because I was, I mean, the people were so huggy and I was like, this is nice, but like you said, but strange, you know what (laughs) I mean? And so they had a guest speaker that day and he shared his testimony. He had been addicted to drugs as a teenager and uh, got saved at 16, I believe. And God turned his life around. And for some reason, that just being in that atmosphere, Mm. hearing his message, that's the first time I really, remember being convicted of my sin, like to the point where I knew God wasn't pleased with my lifestyle Mm. and like my lifestyle wasn't pleasing to God. And I was willfully going against his will Mm. because I was taught as a Catholic, I was taught the 10 commandments and various things like that. And I knew I was breaking a lot, like just willfully doing (laughs) what I wanted to do regardless of what God had said to do. And so um, that day, you know, they had the altar call. And during the altar call, man, I felt like everyone in that, it was hundreds of people there. I felt like everybody in the church was like pointing to me, like, you, mm-hmm. you, you need to go down and get saved. You know, like that's how convicted I felt. So he asked people to come down, you know, give their life to Christ. And I didn't, because I was like, I didn't want to get saved. I didn't want to be a Christian. Mm-hmm. I knew I didn't have to be perfect. But I didn't even want to try. Right. You know, I didn't want Jesus yeah. to be my Lord. I didn't want to live according to his commandments and teachings or even try. I wanted to do what I wanted to do. My boys, my frat brothers, nobody other than, like I said, a couple dudes on the hoop team that I really didn't even understand why they were living the way. That... I didn't know no brothers that were trying to live for the Lord. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like I knew dudes that prayed. I knew dudes that went to church, but really seeking the Lord? trying to live for the Lord. I ain't knowing. I was like, man, shoot. I ain't about to be the only one doing this. You know what I mean? (laughs) And so I went back to school and, you know, doing my thing. And that summer, God still blessed me. I had a summer internship at the Cleveland Plain Dealer newspaper, which was the biggest newspaper in Ohio at the time. It still may be. And um, I had an internship in sports writing. Did well in that. And they told me a few weeks before I was going back to school, Look, you did a great job. When you graduate, we're going to hire you in a year a year from now. So, you know, I'm on top of the world. You know, you're heading into your senior year. You know you have this promise of this job waiting for you. A good job that's going to pay you well. A fun job in sports writing. Like, I was on top of the world. And after a few days of just that, being excited and all that, I really began to feel like, man, is this like all that – life's about, you know, Mm. because I was raised to believe like life is about the American dream, right? Go to school, Chris, get good grades so you can go to a good college, go to a good college so you can get a good job, you know, and take care of your family. Like that was what I was raised to believe was essentially the point of life. And here I was now with that, within my grasp, you know, Mm. like, man, I, I got it. I got a good job. I'm going to have a good job. It's within my grasp. I can see it. I've got the American dream. So feeling that way, I just ultimately began to be like, man, is this all that life's about? Mm. And I began to feel empty. Like, man, there has got to be more to mm. life than this. And I knew it was Christ because I had been convicted months earlier mm. and was running from the Lord but, like I said, I still didn't want to get saved, didn't want to give my life to Christ. And so I'm looking for loopholes, every loophole in the book. You know, I'm looking for ways I can find some peace and some joy without giving my life to Christ because I was really feeling empty inside, even though I had everything going for me. I had a promise of a job, yeah, girlfriend I love, things going well at school, all that.
2: That's the interesting thing about your story is that. Like on the one end, you see the story, this testimony of this person that overcame addiction at church. And you're seeing that kind of bring that person to a strong faith. But in your case, it wasn't like you hit rock bottom. It was actually right. quite the opposite. Like right. you reached this mountaintop of like, hey, I know what I'm going to be doing next year. And it's exactly what I want to do. And it just feels empty. Man,
1: like, that's it. I wasn't wealthy or rich or anything, but I felt like I had what I wanted. and I still wasn't satisfied still wasn't content because that void in in every person's heart because Ecclesiastes says God's put eternity in our heart so I tell people that when I speak like don't sell out God Mm. to get wealth or fame or something because that's not going to satisfy you anyway so why would you go against God for something that's not going to satisfy you When
2: we come back, we will hear how Chris's success led to a coveted offer of a lifetime to be a national sports reporter for the New York Times, which he shockingly refused. That's coming next on Where You're From.
0: This episode is brought to you by Church Salary. Coming up with a reasonable salary range for church staff has never been easy. There are so many details to consider before setting compensation for church staff, and you're probably asking yourself questions like, are we paying too little or too much? What benefits do we offer employees? What's a reasonable housing allowance? Church Salary believes that offering competitive and fair compensation helps keep people in ministry. Using the expansive church-specific compensation database and powerful salary calculator tool, you can also make better compensation decisions so your staff can focus on their ministries. Start with Church Salary's annual membership today to run unlimited customized reports and get access to our member-only content. Ready to start making better compensation decisions? Get started at churchsalary.com.
2: Hey, y'all, before we get back to our conversation with Chris Broussard, I wanted to share a quick teaser from our next episode with Duke Kwan. This is where you're from. That to me is
0: really, really important in terms of being not just willing to, but eager to connect with people across difference. And to do so, again, not in a patronizing way, but in a way where I expect to benefit and where I expect them to be a source of my learning as well. I think that keeps us humble. You know, it means every time you go in, you're going in as a learner, not just a teacher. You're going in as a receiver and not just a corrector of all the ways that they've got things wrong.
2: Now, let's get back into our conversation with Chris Broussard on where you're from. So was there a moment in which after that pursuit of all the things and trying to find loopholes and other ways that you just was there like a specific moment where you were like, all right, Lord, it's you or was it more of a gradual transition?
1: No, nah, it was a moment, like, cause I was looking. I mean, I man, I looked at all types of stuff. Read a story in Rolling Stone magazine. Remember, remember, Bobby Brown was married yes. to Whitney Houston. He was hot. That was nineteen eighty nine. He was the yes. man, right? My and prerogative. He, yeah, my prerogative. Tenderoni, uh, don't be <laughs> cruel. All that. I remember him saying in the article, he was happier. When, as I remember, it, he was happier when he was poor. Hmm. Then when he's rich, because all the problems money brought. Hmm. I remember watching a movie on TV about Elvis Presley. Yeah. How he had, you know, he had everything. And he was miserable yeah. and addicted to drugs. And I was like, man, these dudes had everything. They had even more, you know, way more than I had. All the money, all the fame, all the women you could want. And they weren't happy. Hmm. And they weren't content. So after looking at all these things, I it was my... 21st birthday. We had a scrimmage that day, the basketball team. My parents came up to watch. And after that, they brought me home because they were taking me and my girlfriend out to dinner. It was going to be my 21st Mm. birthday. So before we went out, we were at home. My father and I went to run some errands. And I was like, Daddy, what keeps you going in life? Like I wasn't suicidal or anything, but I just was feeling empty inside. And I was like, what keeps you going like in life? Like you got two boys, they're both in college doing well. You got a nice house. Once you get all that, what keeps you going in life? And it was like, well, you know, you want a promotion on your job or you want Mm. a bigger house or a nicer car. You want to make money to help others. Like it was good stuff, Mm. but I knew I was like, man, none of that is going to fill this void that I'm feeling in my heart. So, Believe it or not, that day before we went out to eat, they brought me a cake and, you know, you're supposed to make a wish and all that. Instead of making a wish, I prayed inside. I didn't tell them, but I gave my life to Christ. Mm. You know, I accepted Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Savior and asked him to fill me with his Holy Spirit. And I, you know, I surrendered my life to Christ on my, so my natural birthday Is my spiritual birthday as well.
2: Hmm. Wow, that's powerful. So, you also introduced in that part of your story another love in your life of sport. So, to take a page out of love and basketball, right? And (laughs) its corollary, brown sugar. When did you fall (laughs) in love with basketball?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Well, and let me say this quickly because most times I tell this story and I forget to say this, and people are like, well, what happened to the girl? Yeah, yeah. we got married, and uh, we've oh, been married. Oh, wow! Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we've been married 27 years, wow. and we have twin daughters. So yeah, so we've been blessed. See, I was afraid to ask because I didn't want it to be like yeah, right, right, then we right. Broke up, and I was like, you know what? I'm just going to leave that
2: alone.
1: <laughs> but I forget to say it, then people are like, So what happened to the girl? You know, wow. But anyway, basketball, man. Believe it or not, my first love was football. I mean sports was like a huge part of my life. Like sports was was everything to me growing up to be honest. And so growing up in Cincinnati as a young kid, football was number 1. I wanted to be the next great tailback. Started playing tackle football when I was 8. Mm. And then to be honest, my second love was baseball mm. in Cincinnati. You had the Cincinnati Reds in the 70s. They were great. The Big Red Machine with uh, Johnny Bench and Joe Morgan and all those guys, Pete Rose. And at that time, and it saddens me that this has become the case, but African-Americans were much more into baseball back in the day. Now, it's probably pretty much viewed as a white sport Mm. or a white and Hispanic, you know, Mm. but African-Americans aren't playing it much. But back then, man, the leagues we played in, tons of black kids playing, Black coaches, football, and baseball were my first two loves. And basketball, of course, I liked, but we wasn't playing it much. And so when I moved to Indiana, Indianapolis at age seven, right before I turned eight, Indiana basketball is huge. Yeah. And that's when I began playing more basketball. But football was my best sport. I wanted to play football in college. And my senior year, I played a, most of my football season with a hip pointer. I was a wide receiver, but I had a hit pointer. I played, but it was hindering my speed a little bit and stuff. And I had a much better year in basketball. I had a good year in football. We made the state playoffs and I started and, you know, we did well. But basketball had a really great year. We played in the greater Cleveland All-Star game where they had the best seniors in the area of play. And ended up being recruited. I was recruited division three, so smaller schools. Okay. Right. But I was recruited in football and basketball in very similar schools, sometimes the same schools. Oberlin College recruited me for both. But even though football was still my favorite sport my senior year, football got more and more painful <laughs> the older you got. Like really. And I felt by the time I was done my senior year. Like I said, I had had a hit pointer throughout most of the year. So that was painful. But I was to the point in college where I was like, you know, if I could just play in the games and not practice, I would go, I would play football. (laughs) But I was like, you know what? I'm just going to play basketball. And so I played basketball at Oberlin and I love football and basketball probably equally, you know, even to this day. But what happened was you know, as a sports writer, I was covering high school sports right. initially. And that, I covered all the sports, you know, mm. every season from volleyball to soccer to wrestling to track to obviously football, basketball, and baseball. And then the sport that my newspaper I was at, the Akron Beacon Journal, promoted me from high school sports to covering the NBA, to covering the Cleveland Cavaliers. Mm. And so that's how I became a basketball writer, and okay. because I played in college, people did associate me even more with basketball, right. like writers and other media. And when I talked to people, and so I kind of became known as just a basketball guy. But if they had promoted me to covering baseball or football, I may have ended up, you know, becoming a guy known for one of those sports. Gotcha.
2: So at this point, you start with the bang being associated with the largest newspapers. In the state of Ohio, when does the next big moment happen that kind of catapults you in your career?
1: You know what was interesting? I actually began teaching seminars on blacks in the Bible. And so, honestly, I felt a strong calling to go into the ministry. Mm. I had a burden for men, for the black community, and I wanted to get them to Christ, you know? And so I was doing a lot of ministry out in the streets, in the projects. Speaking places, you know, rapping, you know, I used to rap and all that. (laughs) And so I felt like I really didn't think I was going to be a sports writer for more than five years, honestly. And I actually applied to several seminaries, was accepted, and was planning on going. And it just never worked out for one reason or another. And I'm, you know, God had another plan. So what happened was I'm covering high school sports for the Cleveland Plain Dealer. And my wife, was my fiance at that time. She was in medical doing her residency in Baltimore. So I was in Cleveland, she was in Baltimore at Johns Hopkins University. So I was doing work and ministry. Mm-hmm. That was what I was doing. So 94, I left the Cleveland Plain Dealer and went to the Akron Beacon Journal. And so when I went there after covering high schools for a few months, they gave me my break. First they had me covering the Cleveland Indians. Mm. For a few months in 1995, I was a backup beat writer and I was at all the games, went to the playoffs. They went to the World Series that year and I was doing all the sidebar stories on them. And then after that, right after I got married, they promoted me to covering the Cleveland Cavaliers. Mm. And so that's where I got my first big break. And 1995, 96 season, I covered the NBA. I covered the Cavs and then covered them the next season. And then after two years, the New York times called me Mm. and they had seen, you know, my stuff, what I wrote about, they liked it, my reporting, and they were interested in me working there. And so I went interview with the New York times. They liked me. They said, Oh, they come back a month from now. We'll do the second interview. But they were clearly very interested. And so when I started covering the NBA, all that ministry I was doing, which was extensive, it stopped because I was working every day. My first year on the Cavaliers, I worked 188 straight days. Wow. I didn't know enough to be like, I need a day <laughs> off. You know, I was just a young gung-ho and going to every practice, every game. I'm on the road. That's 41 games a year, but you know that's more than 41 days on the road. You're there wow. overnight. And so I wasn't doing any ministry. And I felt that burden though, you know, Mm. and so I was praying about it and I was like, man, I feel called to the ministry, but I didn't really necessarily feel called to be a pastor. Mm. You know what I mean? But I didn't know, I was like, I guess I'll be a pastor, but I know I just feel called. So I called the New York Times after about a week or two after I had done an interview with them. And I said, you know, I appreciate your interest in me. Obviously you have a great newspaper and all that, but you know- I'm going into the full time Christian ministry Mm. and I don't want to waste your time with a second interview. And, you know, of course, they're like baffled, you know, like (laughs) "What? what? And then I told the Akron Beacon Journal where I was covering the Cavaliers. I told them what happened and I told them, look, since I'm going into the ministry, I'm not trying to progress as a sports writer. I'd like you to take me off the Cavs beat. And I was enrolled. I was set. I was going to go to Fuller Theological Seminary mm. in Pasadena. I had mm-hmm. gone out there and met with the people. I was visiting seminaries when I was traveling with the Cavs. Wow! And they put the Akron Beacon Journal took me off the Cavs beat and put me on the University of Akron because mm. I was like, since I'm not trying to progress, right. go further, I don't want to travel as much. So I was in, enrolled in Fuller, set to go. My wife had actually gotten a job out there mm. in the medical field. And then she got pregnant with twins. Hmm. And so we're like, man, because I was going to leave my job and just be a full time student. Uh, she wasn't at the point where, you know, she was making a lot of money as a doctor. She wasn't going to be. And so we prayed about it and honestly thought about it, <laughs> You know, <laughs> just thought too and talked about it. And, you know, we decided, you know what, I'll put off seminary. Hmm. Then I'm thinking, man, shoot, I probably should have went to the New York Times. You know (laughs) what I mean? And almost a year to the day that I had told them I wasn't interested, the sports editor for New York Times calls me out of the blue. Hmm. It seemed to me like he was being spiritual because he knew (laughs) where I was coming from. He's like, Chris, I was out jogging the day and the birds were chirping and the sky was blue and the sun was shining. And Something said to me, call Chris Broussard. Mm -hmm. And he said, are you still going to seminary? And I said, yeah, but not for two or three years. It's going to be a few years from now. And he said, well, why don't you come work for the New York Times until you go? And my wife's from New York City. So I'm excited, you know, so I'm like, all right, cool. So I go back out for the second round of interviews. And this time I'm meeting with people from all the departments, editorial departments, and the head honchos at the New York Times. Mm. And to be honest, there was no pressure because I knew they wanted me. Mm. It was awesome because it was like most of the conversations were about my faith, or racial issues hmm. because they knew I had turned it down a year before <laughs> right. to go into the ministry. So people were talking to me about faith. The Million Man March had happened hmm. just recently. They were asking me about that. One guy, black guy, who was there, one of the head execs, he said, you're going to add to our diversity hmm. at the New York Times. And I said, well, I said, why? Because I'm black? He was like, nah, because you're a Christian. You know? <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> So it was really an opportunity to let God just use wow. me. And so I was at the New York times for six years from 1998 to 2004. And then I went to ESPN, the magazine, but they said, look, we've seen you on television. Cause I'd been on various ESPN shows as a writer for the New York times. And they said, we like you on TV. We'll use you, you know, here and there. And as time went on, I just became doing more and more and more television. And so when I left ESPN in 2016, I uh, started out writing for the magazine and doing some stuff for ESPN.com and then gradually just became more of a TV personality. By the time I left in 2016, I was not writing much at all. So I left ESPN in 2016 to go to Fox Sports because Fox Sports was offering me a job as a an opinionist or a commentator rather than trying to break news and chase news. And that was more appealing to me. And so I went to Fox Sports and you know began doing television there and then began doing radio. And now I have a daily national radio show and a daily national television show. And so um, I've been at Fox Sports since 2016.
2: Amazing. Wow, yeah. that's an amazing story. And it's something about for someone working at Akron right, to right. turn them down proactively right. and say, huh, <laughs> no thanks, there's something else. That had to shock everybody because that's the dream for most journalists. Right. But I think it must have did something in your own soul to realize, okay, this is the moment of truth. Like this is the the scenario where I have the world at my fingertips. Am I going to choose that or am I going to choose the Lord? Right. So I I imagine that must have been a very formative experience, even for your own sense. And then to see, oh, God worked it out. He brought it back. I didn't have to fight for it. And they called you.
1: Right. And I still, when I went there, was feeling like this is temporary, you know, like, (laughs) and there were times, I think maybe two more times where I had applied to seminaries, thought I was going to go, been Mm -hmm. accepted, visited seminaries. Yeah. And again, it didn't work out because I had a family to take care of, you know, and ultimately I realized, you know, God has given me a platform I never would have had coming Mm. out of seminary. You know, I'm able to be a light, an example and a witness to people who may never go to church, Mm. who may be antagonistic toward Christianity. And to be honest, I've spoken at some of the biggest churches in America mm. because of sports. Right. I mean, I speak about God, right, right. but they are interested in me because I'm a national sports figure. Gotcha. You know, and that one thing I've been blessed with, Rasul, is that I have a wide range of Christian fellowship
2: mm.
1: because of sports. Because everybody's into sports, right? Right. So I've spoken at Black churches, Hispanic churches, white churches, multiracial churches, Catholic, Pentecostal, Baptist, Mm. you know, most Christians, most, not all, but most Christians who have a wide range of fellowship racially, it's still theologically, they're still in their camp, reformed or word of faith or, you know what I mean? Like they're speaking with people of other races and ethnicities within that kind of strain of Christianity. Right. But I'm actually, yeah, have spoken at all types of churches.
2: And I see behind you, you have your backslash with the word King on it. Yes. K I N G. Tell us about King, what it is, why you started it, and what those letters mean.
1: Yeah. Well, the precursor to King, I had started a group in Cleveland, Ohio, just to kind of strengthen men mm. in their walks of life for two reasons, really. One, myself, I think males and females for that matter, but males long for male bonding Mm. or need male bonding and females need female bonding fraternities, gangs, lodges, sports. So my best memories, as much as I love playing the actual sport, some of my best memories are in the locker room Hmm. on the bus. You know what I mean? Like the interaction and fellowship and bonding with your teammates. And so I longed when I became a Christian. Like I said, I didn't know many Bible-believing Christians. I was in a good church, but most of the guys were older than me, married, you know what I mean? Mm
2: -hmm. And
1: so I longed for that male bonding in Christ. I wanted bonding where we weren't even necessarily talking about God, but I was with brothers, whether we're talking about hip hop or talking about sports or whatever, culture. But that loved the Lord, right. that would encourage me in my walk with the Lord. So that was one reason. The other was that I saw brothers. As I began to meet young brothers around the city of Cleveland that were saved, I saw a lot of them, their walk was like a roller coaster.
2: Yeah,
1: I met brothers who had gotten saved in things like Teen Challenge, where they mm-hmm. went to get off drugs. And, you know, that's Bible-based ministry. And they became strong in the Lord or brothers that got saved in prison or whatever. And, and other ones who didn't have his, you know, that type of dramatic story. But still, I was meeting brothers that were saved and I saw several. Their walks were like on fire for six months and then out for a year hmm. on fire for a year out for six months. And some of the reason for that I saw was because they didn't really have that male bonding in Christ. Right. Like the only cats they really kicked it with were their boys who weren't saved, you know? So I said, man, I I really want to get young men. I was 21 years old, 21, 22, 23 years old. Mm. I want to get young men my age that love the Lord together so we can hang out, kick it, strengthen each other, all that. And so I started a group in Cleveland. We were doing that on a local level. We were ministering. We had rappers. We did all types of stuff and just hang out. Hmm. And so when I started covering the NBA, went to the New York Times and and all this stuff, that burden to reach men with the gospel never really left me. Hmm. And so as I'm progressing in my career, I'm thinking like, man, how can I do this? Because it still was in me to want to do it. And ultimately, um, you know, I started putting down some ideas. I wanted, you know, a name that was masculine mm-hmm. and I wanted an acronym. So I thought, man, King obviously is a great masculine name. And then the acronym is Knowledge, Inspiration, and Nurture Through God. Mm. And so I, I as a group of brothers from my church that I knew and, and other places that were Christians, and uh, I talked to them, started talking to them about King, started sharing with them the ideas I had for it and all that. And a couple were gung ho. And so we started out with just a prayer call. And then gradually it grew to where we got a website. We started starting local chapters in various cities. And again, people knowing me, mm. you know, nationally, that helped. We have roughly 20 chapters throughout the country. Mm. We have obviously a website, kingmovement.com. We have paraphernalia hats, hoodies, sweatshirts, T-shirts, wristbands. We have a a summit, a men's conference every year. We call it the King National Summit. And so we've done events at Morehouse College, uh, other HBCUs. We work with the NFL during Super Bowl to do an event at these HBCUs where we speak to hundreds of high school and college age young men about faith and about other aspects of life that can help them grow into fathers and husbands and leaders. So we've had several NFL Hall of Famers and former players, NBA former players and current sometimes speak Mm -hmm. at our events. God has blessed it to really grow and prosper, but we even got a long way to go.
2: No, that's dope. And I also think about how the scriptures don't run away from Sports analogies and examples as well. First Corinthians 9, 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Right. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable crown, but we an imperishable. Paul is like intertwining this example to say, look at... I mean, this is 2000 years ago and it's still the same thing. Like, you know, look at what these athletes go through and commit themselves to let that be an example to us about how we should go hard for God. Man,
1: and real talk. is that
2: something that you see that those parallels to when you're, you're exposed to the best athletes in the world?
1: Yeah, completely. For me, that scripture really was a challenge to me when my brother was in the Nation of Islam. He's out now, but seeing him so committed. I mean, he was mm. committed. He was almost living an ascetic lifestyle, you know? Mm. And I was like, man, all he's given up, all he's doing for his faith, how much more mm. should I go hard for Christ? So yes. that really led me to Got study and, and learn more. But yeah, in sports, you're right. I mean, when you think about what these athletes go through, the dedication that they have to their craft. Yeah. We should apply that dedication to our faith.
2: Yeah. So I'm going to get you out of here on this. We talked about, and I think for good reason, the spiritual insights that we can gain from sports. But I also want to give you an opportunity to speak to the other side of that. Like you've seen the importance of putting Christ above sports and ways in which sometimes that gets lost.
1: Look, man, obviously I love sports. Sports has that's how I've made my living. You know, I mean, it's enabled me to provide for my family, put two daughters through college. have a great lifestyle. So it's been great for me. But honestly, I think sports in America has become idolatry. You can literally do nothing but watch sports, like be involved in sports. Like you cannot pay attention to the news, to what else is going on in life. Like there are enough outlets now where you can totally be immersed in sports outside of whatever your job is you can totally be immersed in sports and really know nothing else as an adult the obviously outlandish amounts of money that the athletes make which i don't fault them at all they're just making their fair share at least you know they get about 50 percent roughly of what the sport generates so we as a society but anybody wants to say oh we paying the athletes this much money the society That's the amount of money we spend on the sports. So don't blame the athletes. That's a reflection of our society. So I think in a lot of ways it's become idolatry and led people away from things that, I mean, I think, again, sports is great, but it should be kept in a proper perspective. Mm. And so Christ, obviously, I mean, is the only thing that's going to fulfill you.
2: This is Where You're From. I'm Russell Berry. And remember, it's not just about where you're at. It's also about where you're from. This show was produced by Ryan Clevenger, Mary Jo Clark, and Jade Gussman, and was engineered by Gabrielle Bower and Kevin Burgess. I also want to thank Caleb and Kino for their help in supporting and promoting Where You're From. Thanks, y'all. Where You're From is part of the Voices collection from Our Daily Bread Ministries. This episode
0: was brought to you in part by the audio adventure series Discovery Mountain. Help your kids fall in love with the Bible. Each true-to-life adventure story will draw them closer to Jesus. Visit discoverymountain.com/ct